Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, we'll talk a little bit about buyouts of craft brewers. We'll also discuss barbecue and we'll talk Taco Bell's innovation. But we lead off today's show with Dine Equity as Dine Equity announced a slew of closures and a change in leadership Late last week, the announcement came alongside their second quarter earnings release, which was released on Thursday, August 10th. This has captured a lot of headlines. The second quarter continued a dismal run for Applebee's. They've struggled mightily to find a differentiator as customers continue to prefer fast casuals or other FSRs. Applebee's placing a little bit of blame on not being able to attract the millennial demographic. But when you look at the company overall, Leighton, it certainly appears to be deeper than that. Dine Equity is a company we've covered in the past and a company that we really question as far as their strategy going forward. Talking about the slew of closers, CBS first reporting this and up to 160 potential locations that are going to be closed inside the United States. Over 100 are going to be that problematic banner in Applebee's and around 20 or so IHOP. They're saying over 100, so you're saying that there could be a fluctuation between the numbers of closures between Applebee's and IHOP, but that number, that 160 locations, is pinpointed here. These closings are in line with the general performance that Dine Equity has seen from their two banners over the course of the last year. Management will still be looking for international growth, however, particularly with IHOP. So that was sort of the caveat here with this release. Yes, we are going to be closing some locations, but... Yes, we are still actually growing our more competitive franchise within the IHOP banner. Their dual banner concept is actually safe as well. We discussed that a few months ago. It's going to be a banner that has both Applebee's and IHOP food served from the same kitchen. This is going to be a Detroit metropolitan area location. Overall, this is actually going to be a slim margin in terms of the closures compared to their overall store or restaurant count so far. You're saying that Dine Equity has slightly over 2,000 Applebee's and around 1,600 IHOPs, and this is a global figure encompassing both licensed and franchise stores and the slight bit of company-owned locations that are still left. Discussing their second quarter earnings here, many in the industry, many analysts that discuss the industry are really seeing this as a mid-tier full-service restaurant, and many restaurants in this sector have been struggling to find a competitive niche. And Applebee's has certainly been especially hit hard, as we see in Thursday's numbers, keeping on with the downward trends that have made shareholders rather timid with the share price. The company reported sliding sales in both banners. Same restaurant sales declined at a much faster pace at Applebee's than IHOP, which again keeps along with the trend that we've been seeing throughout the previous quarters and the press releases. Domestic same restaurant sales for Applebee's slipped 6.2%. And if you look at IHOP, those numbers are actually reversed 2.6% in their downward figure. And you see for the first six months of 2017, domestic comps have so far fallen 7% for Applebee's and 2.1% for IHOP. The revenues were not disclosed in the company's highlights. So this is really more of a tale of what the company wants to hide. However, if you look into the more detailed income statement, 
you can see that sales for sure did fall around $5 million. And for the three months ended June 30th, they contracted about 3.1% versus 2016's numbers. They reported revenue of $155.1 million. This also carried a higher cost to the company, meaning that gross profit actually fell as a percentage of revenue to around $91.8 million. Revenue missed analyst expectations of around $156 million, so a slight miss there, but you can see again, top-line revenue is falling year over year. Net income, the last bit here we'll be talking about as far as the financials are concerned. It was a big story coming out of earnings because they actually not only met but exceeded expectations. Net income from the company came in at $20.9 million or $1.18 per share. This was down from around $26.4 million. But again, on the adjusted basis, the $1.30 per share that Dine Equity reported beat Wall Street expectations by about 9.2% overall. Now, the industry as a whole that Dine Equity operates in has been struggling a little bit, that mid-tier FSR industry. There are still some of these restaurants that have been doing okay and kind of keeping their head above water. So let's look now at why Applebee's hasn't kept their market share, hasn't been able to at least keep sales stagnant rather than falling. A lot of people think it's oversupply in the market, and we tend to agree with this. There seems to be an absolute influx of these mid-tier FSR offerings. And of course, there is the big talk of millennials, but it looks as though a lot of customers as a whole have been favoring places with more LTO or limited time offerings. Applebee's, of course, has these, but they haven't been notable enough to drive traffic. This is something a restaurant like Olive Garden has been able to do with their never-ending pasta promotion and also their buy one, take one home promotion that's driven a lot of traffic. In fact, Darden still claims that 30% of their core customer fits into the millennial demographic that Applebee's has been attempting to court, at least per their company statements. Now, Applebee's does have a new president that came aboard in March, and he's tried to identify exactly why they're not attracting as many people as before. This seems like a very familiar song and verse as Applebee's has gone through a couple of reinventions over the last few years. First, he feels like previous upscale attempts alienated longtime customers who treated Applebee's as an actual neighborhood grill, which was kind of their tagline for years. You know, some remodels were probably necessary throughout their chain, but food quality didn't seem to catch up with what their marketing was trying to sell to the public. So they both alienated some of their longtime customers by hiking the perception of quality and hiking the prices, meanwhile failing to attract those that would have been attracted had they delivered on the quality front. The second reason that their president feels as though Applebee's is losing in market share is a lack of franchisee coordination. Training and brand image is seen varying levels throughout different markets. And this seems to be the theme of their recent earnings call and their most recent CEO appointment. Let's talk about that CEO appointment. The Dine Equity Board officially appointed Stephen P. Joyce as the company's CEO, which was also announced last week. His first day will be September 12th. 
The board, as well as an executive search firm, explored what they called many high-level candidates in the placement process. Joyce's experience in franchising will certainly at least purport to help out Dine Equity, but he also has solid knowledge of global business dynamics, and that's what seemed to drive the appointment. He's got over 30 years of high-level management experience through nearly every functional part of marketing, finance, and new development, but most recently has carried a few headlines. He was the CEO of Choice Hotels International in the hospitality industry, and there he pushed for more digital sales avenues. That seemed to play itself out prior to Choice Hotels. He also worked in the hospitality industry as the executive vice president at Marriott over development and franchise services, and certainly the franchise services, the part of that that Dine Equity would like to highlight. What's most interesting about this hire is that the company didn't have to go too far to find him because he's been on the Dine Equity board since 2012. So he is familiar with the organization in a statement. He said he's familiar with their issues and he's approaching this project with eyes open. I don't know if this is going to create an immediate turnaround for Dine Equity, but certainly a change in leadership and maybe another organizational pivot was in the cards, regardless of whether it works 100% because Applebee's cannot continue on their current course. Change really does have to happen for Dine Equity and Applebee's in particular. IHOP seems to be doing fine. They're going to be competing in a very limited space. You have a lot of competitors there, namely Denny's, who's also publicly traded, but it's interesting because they did, the board of DynEquity did pay an outside firm to be looking for an executive at this high of level, looking to fill that CEO role. It's interesting that they found actually that their own board member was going to fill that seat, so potentially wasted money there in that outside research. But what is very interesting about this appointment is that franchise experience looking towards better coordination with their franchisees. Like you said, Trent, their current president of Applebee's is looking to blame a lot of the franchisee coordination, the talk and communication between the executive team and the people down at those restaurants, whether it be the general managers or the franchisees. They're looking for a better way to communicate. I feel like the blame here can go both ways. A franchisee, obviously they pay the royalty and obviously they pay the initial setup fee for the franchise, but overall you're seeing that there may be more than one party to blame in that there could be a little bit of disheartened nature when it comes to the franchisees. They feel like maybe they don't have the support of the executive teams because all of this remodel expense that has taken place, a lot of franchisees, by the way, have been actually transferring locations. So they have these brand new locations and yet the traffic has not been to follow. So Overall, I feel like there's probably a little bit of blame to go both ways, but this type of talk, this type of talk about coordinating the executive views with the franchisee and general manager views, this is what's needed inside the company because if they get onto a strategy that works, it needs to be implemented system-wide. Everyone needs to be on board, and this is something that you see a lot of successful franchisees do. This is something that we've discussed actually recently with Del Taco that they're on board with any new idea, whether it's product innovation, differentiation within the menu, or maybe changing up some of the things in the back end of the operation. The company executives are open ears, and I think that's what is needed here with Applebee's. As we go on to the shares, ticker DIN have been down slightly over the past year because of all this fluctuation, because of this unsustainable dynamic that they currently have. You see that 
Because of the news of restructuring and that new CEO appointment, the shares popped 14% after the earnings call, and we see that shares are still down 48% for the calendar year. So certainly, if you're a longtime shareholder, not a great position to be in. But again, we suspect the spike in the share price was attributable to the full-time CEO appointment and strong net income. Again, they beat by that 9.2% figure. And keep in mind, Dynequity has not shied away from a dividend. That's what a lot of analysts were saying. Despite all of this talk about where is the company headed, what are they going to be growing with internationally, well, they still have a 9% yield per their current share price. So if you're a longtime shareholder or an institutional shareholder, it's going to be a positive sign at least to hold in the short term. Well, we move on to our second story, and one that we found very interesting in that two beer stories regarding buyouts hit the news of craft brewers being bought by larger firms. The first happened voluntarily last week with Funky Buddha selling to Constellation Brands. The second happened as part of a bankruptcy proceeding with a group led by New Belgium purchasing Magnolia Brewing Company. First, we're going to delve into Funky Buddha, which they're best known in the beer community for their interesting flavor mashups and use of additional ingredients in certain batches. Some of their notable beers include a maple bacon coffee porter, their pineapple beach pilsner, and their sweet potato casserole ale. So a lot to take in there as far as speaking those names, but they are based in Oakland Park, Florida, started by KC and Ryan Sense. Terms of the deal with Constellation Brands weren't made available, so we don't know exactly how much they were bought for, other than that the deal will not change leadership at Funky Buddha. So some potential good signs if you're working there in those factories. But Constellation Brands, meanwhile, is the third largest brewer in the United States behind Anheuser-Busch InBev and Miller Coors. Their brand portfolio includes mostly brands recognized as Mexican lagers with Corona, Modelo, Pacifico, and Victoria. The only other U.S. brand Constellation holds is Ballast Point, which, again, is another craft brand that is located in San Diego. Ballast Point was sold for a reported $1 billion in 2015 and was financed with both debt and cash. Pretty good for a company that was founded in just 1996. Currently, Funky Buddha is a bit smaller than Ballast Point was in 2015. So we'd guess that the purchase price for Funky Buddha is going to be a little bit lower than that $1 billion mark. But breweries have been commanding a healthy sum of late because of that entrance into the craft beer market. Those larger operators want a piece of the action. The operator of Ballast Point told us recently that the deal was pretty much just for distribution, syncing that and the accounting with the larger company and that Constellation has no desire to suggest any changes be made brewing-wise, preferring to stay hands-off or laissez-faire. Constellation, in addition to this deal, did recently begin a beer project with Rick Bayless, owner of Frontera Brands. This project recently released their first beer, a hominy wit. Now, the web reaction to this deal where Constellation, a true international brand, has had significant concern that Constellation will meddle in Funky Buddha's brewing operations. But once again, Ballast Point's quality hasn't noticeably declined in the time since the takeover in 2015. You look at Ballast Point's scores on Beer Advocate and Untapped, two very popular public beer rating sites. They haven't taken a noticeable hit since the buyout. In fact, 
Ballast Points Sculpin IPA is a 97 on Beer Advocate, one of the highest ratings for any regular run IPA that's out there right now. Ryan's sense of Funky Buddha will stay on as president and head brewer, and he noted in a release that they chose to partner with Constellation because of their organizational philosophy. It's tough to say whether they had standing offers from any other beer giants or distributors, but the word chose in the release certainly indicates that there was a choice there. It indicates that maybe there were other brands at play. The largest benefit here coming from this deal for Funky Buddha obviously comes from the national distribution capabilities. Considering they only began distributing to stores in December of 2014, this is a very quick rise to national distribution for the brand. Currently, their products aren't widely available outside of the American Southeast, so they stand to benefit heartily from shipping their products all across the United States. Now let's talk about Magnolia Brewing, who was acquired by a consortium including New Belgium based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. The excellent Jacob Laxon, who was a past guest on our Retail Focus podcast, reported in the Fort Collins, Colorado and of the purchase of Magnolia Brewing last Thursday, August 10th. And again, the group led by New Belgium, which is considered a legacy craft brewer with Fat Tire becoming an iconic brand in the U.S. over the last 20 years. Magnolia, as for them, they were founded in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in 1997, very popular district dating back to the 60s. But Magnolia has struggled financially this decade, and they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in November of 2015. New Belgium is the main bankroller for this deal, but they're joined by craft brewer Dick Cantwell. He was the founder of Elysian Brewing and also by Belgian brewery Ode Biersel. The connection between New Belgium and Elysian is interesting, though. When we dive a little bit deeper, New Belgium's co-founder and their executive chair, Kim Jordan, is currently dating and sharing a San Francisco residence with Dick Cantwell. So we see why New Belgium might be partnered up with Cantwell here. When he was at Elysian, for example, they partnered with New Belgium on several collaboration beers. Cantwell made a solid amount of money when he, along with Elysian's other two founders sold them to Anheuser-Busch in 2015. The deal that we're talking about today, though, the Magnolia deal, this is a relative steal at a reported $2.7 million. This compared to the 8, 9, and 10-figure deals that had been reported for other craft brewers. So a drop in the bucket to the three investors here. Magnolia had two locations in San Francisco. Both are reported to remain open after the sale. The company will also retain their name and their branding, but there will be some shakeup on the operations front, including Cantwell, who will take over as the head brewer at Magnolia. It makes sense. He's got an extensive and successful history in the beer industry, as he was also the head brewer at Elysian. Meanwhile, Dave McLean, the founder of Magnolia, will stay on as an employee of the new management team. New Belgium said they will attempt to retain all existing staff at Magnolia as best they can. Now, in terms of the beer itself, lest people worry that the beer may change in terms of quality or quantity, Cantwell claimed that most of Magnolia's flagship beers will still be produced. However, the ownership matchup provides opportunity for further collaboration. Apparently, Udbirsel, who is part of the new ownership group and New Belgium, will both use Magnolia as a blending station for collaborations on Lambics, which tend to be a little bit of a sweeter beer. This partnership was specifically mentioned in Laxon's article, and this apparently is the main purpose behind the acquisition. Another media outlet 
quoted Kim Jordan as calling it an opportunity to practice brewing with friends. So here it's not so much an acquisition to grow a company as it is an opportunity to take over a brewery and use it as creative grounds to produce new and better beer. Overall, this acquisition, unlike the Funky Buddha acquisition, keeps craft beer in the hands of craft, so to speak. It's hard to imagine this not working out given the clout and the street cred of the new owners and fans of Magnolia, I think, may be excited that the brewery was not only saved, but it didn't end up in the hands of one of those top three beer giants in the country. To the retailers and business owners out there, have you ever wondered how big box retailers like Home Depot, Nordstrom, or Crate and Barrel continue to increase profitability and customer retention? Well, they do so in part by providing their shoppers with purchase financing solutions. But honestly, it takes dedicated teams, millions of dollars a year, tons of man hours to manage the complexity of financing programs. And that's not something that's going to work out for a smaller company. Well, now you can offer your shoppers the same purchase financing option as the big guys without all the hassle, headache, or compliance. Gain Loans provides merchants of all sizes across many different industries the same big box financing tools without the cost or complexity. Simply download or install the Gain Loans widget on your website or post a sign in front of your store and you and your customers will start benefiting from their increased purchasing power. For more information or to become part of the Gain Loans retailer pilot program for some in-store signage, that type of thing, contact info, I-N-F-O, at gainloans.com. That's G-A-N-E loans.com. Gain Loans, the official sponsor of our e-commerce interview series in the lead up to shop.org in September. And again, this is a program that comes at no cost to retailers. And in fact, when executed well, retailers will only see a bump in top line revenue and won't even know the customers are using it. We turn to barbecue now as barbecue full-service restaurant Famous Dave's reported earnings after the bell on Monday of this week. These earnings were for their second quarter of fiscal 2017, but before we get into those, let's tap into the history of Famous Dave's. That's not something we've covered so far on the Food Focus. Famous Dave's is a little bit of a new business for us in terms of coverage. They were started fairly recently, June 1995 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They have a combination of franchised and company-owned stores. At the beginning of this year, they had 176 total restaurants in 32 states, as well as some international locations. 37 of their 176 company-owned, 139 are franchised. Since that point, though, four franchise locations and four company-owned locations have closed. Most recently, in May of 2017, they announced an initiative to refranchise the remaining 33 company-owned stores. This effort is still ongoing, but will be reflected in reduced overall revenues as they shift in model to exclusively collecting franchise royalties. So it won't look as though the company is pulling in nearly as much revenue, but their margins will be much, much higher. And the idea is that the bottom line will be higher as well. Now, for Famous Dave's, their main national competitors include Rib Crib, of course, but also Brinker International, the parent of Chili's. And although we haven't followed them much on the show, there's been some interesting goings-on with the company financially. They blamed over 90% of their operating loss during the 2016 fiscal year on closing 11 restaurants, which, and I quote, were slow to respond to several initiatives to turn around operating performance, end quote, basically saying that either franchisees or the stores themselves 
weren't responding or weren't carrying out these initiatives or customers weren't responding to the initiatives on the other side. They've struggled somewhat as a whole in recent years, revenue dipping under $100 million in 2016, of course, partially due to refranchising efforts. Still, company-owned comp sales were down 5% last year, and royalty revenue was down 4.7% due to comp sales losses by franchisees. They're First quarter results, looking back three months ago, showed a 3.3% comparable restaurant sales decline, fueled by dine-in sales dipping 3.5%. However, if you want to look at a possible positive, or at least something neutral for the company, to-go sales were actually up 0.4% year over year, and catering sales were nearly flat at negative 0.2% of a drop. On July 17th, Zach's Investment Research downgraded Famous Dave's stock from hold to sell. So with all of that backdrop and all of these things to watch, let's get into their second quarter results. Despite the downgrades for the company, earnings beat coming in at just $0.16 per share versus Wall Street's $0.09 per share. Revenue did miss, however, as the company brought in $25.3 million versus the proposed $26 million. Comparable site sales were said to be up for the company, but they weren't actually up. They were actually just up in terms of the amount of decline, if that makes sense. Franchise restaurants had a negative 3.2%. Same restaurant sales. Company-owned performed slightly better, falling just 2.2%. Both had negative comps during the second quarter of last year, but as I was trying to allude to, they actually fell by a larger percentage. General administrative expenses did fall by about $1 million and nearly 20 basis points as a percentage of revenue. So this means they are operating a little more efficiently. Obviously, general administrative expenses are going to fall if you have a lower store count. But you can see as we delve into the numbers as a percentage of revenue, they're actually getting better for the company. The company did close three locations during the quarter and opened one. We mentioned how many restaurants they had at the beginning of the year. Now they only have 29 company-owned stores and 135 franchise locations still inhabiting those 32 states, however. Some notes from the call, the conference call from this latest earnings release. We see that CEO Mike Lister said they have more progress to make, but he likes where they're at in regards to the refranchising efforts that the company has undergone and keeping those costs low. And those two things really tied into the highlights that the media was keen on. One, the general administrative expenses keeping low. And the other being those refranchising efforts. Those efforts do seem to be looking like they're working. They want to streamline overall operations. And they're now only 14% of revenue, those general and administrative expenses. Their aggressive, what they call store optimization plan, has seen them close stores before lease renewals and quickly transferring the ownership of company-owned restaurants that have been successful to franchisees. However, that does come at a bottom-line cost. They recorded a $3.5 million asset impairment related to all of these costs during the second quarter. Obviously, anytime you have to cancel a lease, you're going to have to pay for it. Refranchising all restaurants they feel will allow them to focus more on better serving their franchisees rather than diverting resources to their own company-run restaurants. And this is something we've seen time and time again. This is really a larger theme throughout the industry of late. You're seeing that Wendy's, Sonic, Dine Equity even are looking towards releasing their company-owned assets and getting good and respectable franchisees with a long story track record on board with their concept. They feel positive strides in executive strategy are tied directly with lower comparable sales losses in the most recent quarter. So they're seeing the effects of the store optimization effort already. 
and tying that into their financial performance. They want to improve and to get into positive territory soon. And they talked about a lot of initiatives in 2018. They want to begin an interaction with franchisees talking about different things they can adjust to make them sustainable for the long term. The CEO listed four overarching initiatives for the company, which include nearly every facet of restaurant operations. They released a customer survey, in fact, recently to better gauge what they feel they need to innovate product-wise and how they're going to increase guest counts on through that 2018 year. They also want to build out and develop an entirely new concept where they see a simplified menu focusing and promoting their barbecue expertise and a smaller store footprint, which of course will lend the company to better overhead costs. They allude to the idea of these evolutionary changes and that they will appeal to bringing in new customers and new operators, something that they're really bullish on. This is their longer term vision to get new franchisees aboard that will then want to grow the company out. We're talking now about contracting store units. They actually want to do the opposite after 2018. As we put our heads together, we're looking at this story in Famous Dave's overall, and we're kind of split between agreeing with the rudimentary concept of evolving and continuous improvement that everyone shoots towards, but we also worry that a fairly new restaurant such as Famous Dave's is nearing what could amply be described as an identity crisis of sorts. This is truly where we see that any management team has the opportunity to affect and implement change, but it's only the elite managers that end up successful after a major change like this. A prime example of this on a much larger scale would be McDonald's and what Steve Easterbrook was able to do. We note a complete turnaround since he took over after stock stagnation for four years, a 62% share price increase since he took over back in 2015. But in terms of Famous Dave specifically, I do think that this latest earnings call was more positive than negative. Even though you're still seeing some losses on those same restaurant sales, the losses aren't quite as bad. Not only that, an earnings beat and the fact that they're going to distance themselves from even more significant impairment charges they experienced last year, it does mean that we could see a potential positive earnings year for Famous Dave's this year, but certainly going forward because of their franchising or refranchising now model, you could see some positivity now where just a year or so ago, there wasn't a ton of that. Shares of ticker Dave were up 11% on Thursday to 390 per share. According to public disclosure documents, there was a lot of insider buying and institutional investment between relative seven-year lows of 345 and 350 per share over the last couple of weeks now trading at $3.90 per share after all-time highs in September of 2014 around $35 per share so down drastically from where they were at 3 years ago but still improved from their recent 7-year low we end with a story about food innovation by way of Taco Bell. They've once again redefined what an LTO can mean for a QSR. Their new breakfast taco is apparently using a fried egg as the tortilla shell. We're going to also be talking about two other innovations that were actually previously announced, but they're still pilot programs throughout different parts of the country. This one actually has to do with just one of these items. We're going to be talking about more with the naked egg taco, as they call it. The product innovation will be at a $1.99 price point. The shell was apparently tested earlier this year in Michigan, 
and then stopped and now it's going to be rolling out nationwide on Thursday, August 31st. In an earlier podcast, we discussed the fried chicken shell taco that the company introduced but was then discarded from the menu around February. The naked egg taco carries the same idea, a shell that has been made with a little bit more texture and flexibility than a normal taco shell, but can also be marketed alongside whatever the company is trying to push. In this case, their breakfast offerings. And you see that Taco Bell has conformed biscuits and waffles to shells in prior years with different limited time offerings. Obviously, the waffle shell would tie into the breakfast as well. The naked egg taco is filled with potatoes, cheese, and bacon or sausage. And Trent, what's interesting is how they're marketing and the exposure they're getting in the mass media without really having to spend much. That's one of the benefits of this LTO binge that Taco Bell has been on pretty much for the last decade. And this is where we saw benefits for Burger King or Restaurant Brands International when Burger King was hitting the LTOs hard through last year. They've had a social media push, of course, and they had kind of an anti-social media push with the fried chicken shell. But here, the company has the luxury of having its latest innovations, like the Naked Egg Taco, hit the mass media without much of an ad spend, in part because of things like late-night television shows. Seth Meyers, for example, on Late Night with NBC mentioned it in a joke. And it's not always the most flattering of joke when it comes to Taco Bell's LTO, but the old saying, Oscar Wilde, I believe, had it, that the only bad publicity is no publicity in this case. Ask Chipotle how that goes. But still, in this circumstance, Taco Bell seems to be certainly benefiting from the massive amounts of promotion and blog posts about this. Liz Matthews, their chief food innovation officer, said, and I quote, shell innovation is at the core of where we experiment, end quote. And of course, we have seen this in spades over the last couple of years. One of the interesting things about this particular innovation is the direction they could take it. Certainly, when you're looking at a fried egg as the shell, you can stuff it with just about anything. But of course, remember that they have beans on hand at all times. They can maybe unveil a reverse huevos rancheros, for example. Huevos rancheros, a flavor that is helping a number of breakfast menus innovate throughout the country. So there are a lot of innovations that can follow this up. I don't think we've seen the end of the egg shell for the breakfast taco and one of the added benefits in this circumstance because they're using an egg for the shell technically this product also gluten-free and one of the reasons why we're anxious to try it but I, I would guess going into the future for them that they're going to innovate and tinker around with the egg for the shell in the breakfast space see if they can come up with something new I would not be surprised if they start integrating beans or perhaps some of their other meats beyond bacon and sausage as far as that is concerned. Now, let's look at two other menu innovations that are already out. They've released a firecracker burrito, by the way, in California, and that certainly took some news. But in April, a loaded taco burrito arrived at several markets, not nationwide, but several markets, and that was April 6th. It's only available for a limited time. It's $1.49, normal beef burrito, but stuffed with red tortilla chips in order to give it extra texture. Not all that different from some of their innovations surrounding Fritos and these red tortilla strips in the past. But something that is on the horizon that we'll be watching carefully is the Mexican crispy chicken pizza. This features a Mexican pizza shell 
nacho cheese sauce, crispy chicken, Mexican pizza sauce, a three-cheese blend, and pico de gallo. Of course, Taco Bell has long had kind of a Mexican pizza of their own. It started tests with customers in Columbus, Ohio, on April 6th, on that April 6th date, Columbus, Ohio, a very traditional test market used by QSRs on a frequent basis. Overall, it could be said that this continuation of strategy for Taco Bell, rolling out crazy and new and innovative LTOs, has been successful. It drives traffic on a consistent basis. And during Yum Brands' latest quarter, which was actually reported earlier this month on August 3rd, Taco Bell had the highest same-store sales of any of the Yum Brands, including KFC and Pizza Hut. They came in at positive 4%. Taco Bell and KFC also matched sales increases overall on the top line of 7%. In terms of core operating profit, Taco Bell and KFC are certainly being leaned on as Pizza Hut's seen their market share be eroded by the likes of Papa John's, Domino's, and a number of other pizza operatives, including Little Caesars, whom we talked about recently on this podcast. Still an interesting handful of innovations for Taco Bell. We mentioned the firecracker burrito out in California as well. But I think, and I want to restate this, we have not seen the end of their naked egg taco and innovations surrounding the naked egg taco. We've reached the final segment now of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I review a food product that we tried that's new to the world of food. And Leighton, in this case, is going to cheat a little bit because he doesn't have a what we ate, but he's going to look ahead to a future what we ate, perhaps. Yeah, instead of making up something, I decided to give a good looking ahead story, a story that we were going to cover on this edition of the podcast, but we did not have enough room. The Wendy's company had a earnings report earlier this week, and you saw a very good financials from the company. However, they did have a one-time impairment loss due to a long-standing dispute with a former franchisee that owned 140 Wendy's restaurants. I believe it was the second largest franchisee inside the United States. And because of this one-time expense, you're looking at a larger strategy for Wendy's going forward. Whether you're on board with their current vision at the executive level or you're going to be bought out. That's basically what they're telling their franchisees. And because of this one-time expense, you see that the Dublin, Ohio-based quick service restaurant chain had a net loss for this latest earnings release, despite same-store sales being up around 3.2%. 3.2% is far beyond what a lot of other QSRs are doing, especially in their particular space. So going forward, the main story for me is going to be, are there going to be other QSRs or other franchisees that have these similar issues with their executive team? trying to release something that's maybe new as far as a menu innovation or forcing remodels on them because they're looking at that long-term sustainability. It's really easy to sit back and get those cash flows if you're a long-time franchisee. You're not really looking to grow your portfolio maybe. Yeah, your same store sales are maybe stagnant within your certain amount of restaurants that you own, but overall, that's okay with what you want. However, Wendy's really wants to refresh their total brand image and I'm curious to see if they actually take over any other franchisees in doing this. Wendy's sued Daveco, which was the franchisee in late 2014. And this, again, a long-standing dispute that finally got resolved. And you're seeing now that they sold those locations to another larger franchisee inside the United States. But with this agreement, they're looking to remodel now a lot of these units. And they're going to have these new restaurants out by the end of 2022. So a company theme here for Wendy's is that 
Again, you're either on board with the refreshing and the product innovation, or you may, again, be not part of the company any longer. Something that really is probably tying into the success if you look in terms of stock price for the company up significantly over the past two years. Well, from a restaurant that is seeking maybe new franchisees to move from old franchisees to a restaurant who's just seeking franchisees, period, I recently visited Snooze, which is, as they brand themselves, an AM eatery. They serve largely breakfast and lunch, kind of a brunch, if you will. And the reason I was attracted to this is because they have grown by nearly double their number of stores just in the past two years, and they've got more stores in the pipeline. They were founded in the Denver, Colorado metro area, but now they have locations in Arizona from just two to now four locations in Arizona in the last year. They're building out in the L.A. and San Diego areas in California, in Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, and Texas. And they've got additional restaurants coming in California and Texas just around the corner. So they're collecting franchisees very rapidly as they've multiplied their number of locations pretty much overnight. So they are an eatery to watch for and no doubt a company that we'll be talking about in the future. Now, as for what I tried, I had their Chili Verde Benny. We should mention that their menu is localized to each of the four states that they're in. So their menu is going to be different. I went to a Colorado location and this Eggs Benedict dish had pulled pork over a stack of what they called green chili sauce tortillas. Rather than using the traditional English muffin for the Eggs Benedict, they stacked a number of corn tortillas together, drenched them in green chili sauce, and basically cooked them so that the eight tortillas were congealed. They then topped it with perfectly poached eggs, extraordinarily creamy, and then a green chili hollandaise sauce, which I can honestly say was to die for. Now, this dish came at a price point of around $9. Very reasonable for the amount of food I got. I had hash browns on the side, and the hash browns shaped a bit like a hockey puck, but there was good caramelization on the top and bottom of the hash browns. Overall, I think certainly this is an up-and-coming restaurant, but I like the fact that they've been able to scale up without hurting some of the local nature of their menus. The fact that they've got separate menus for each of the states they operate in is a good sign. The problem is, as with any such eatery, they might be capped a little bit on how far they can expand. But right now, there's plenty of white space in the Phoenix, L.A., and Texas markets overall. So I don't foresee a problem, at least in the near future. And I wouldn't be surprised if they have 50 outlets, as many as 50 outlets, by the end of 2018. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent saying so long. Be sure and check out Retail Focus later this week when we'll cover Target's earnings surprise. And we'll also discuss the off-price space as TJX companies have another excellent quarter. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.